Uh, well, good morning. Uh, I guess I should uh, introduce myself. Uh, it's been uh, a month and a half since I last preached. Uh, some of you won't know who I am. Uh, I'm Jonathan, uh, one of the leaders of the church here across our three sites, meaning here in the west, up in the north, uh, and down in the south of the city uh, as well. Uh, and I've got to say, I am absolutely pumped about this brand new preaching series that we are launching into uh, today. Uh, more about that in a few moments' time. But before we get into it, Here's how I want to set the scene. One of the things that often I find hardest about my job is chatting to people often towards the end of their life and hearing them say things like, well, I spent my whole life climbing up this ladder and now I realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. They might not put it quite in those words, but they say things like, well, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. Or, I wish that I'd got stressed a lot less about things that don't really matter. Or they'll say things like, well, I wish I'd taken a whole lot more risks with my life. Or I wish I'd invested my life in things that really make a difference. Now what we're going to be doing over the next 20 weeks is very much taking a step back and considering something of the bigger picture. You see, it's very, very easy to just get caught up with the busyness of life that you end up missing the point completely, that you end up losing focus on what really is all about. You just end up living from one day to the next, never taking the time to ask the simple question, what am I actually here for? That's the basic idea behind this new sermon series that we're launching today. The big story, the Bible, the whole Bible, in just 20 weeks. Let's have a quick show of hands. Who'd be quite keen to know the message of the Bible? Who'd be kind of interested to know how it all fits together? Anyone? The vast majority of people in the room. The problem is, Let's face it, the Bible is very, very long, and we are very, very busy. And when we do read it, it's often hard to see the wood for the trees amongst its 66 books, its 1,189 chapters, and its 31,102 verses. That is why I am so excited about this series. It's going to help us see the big picture in God's great story. We're going to see God's purpose and God's plan for the world unfolding week by week as we dip back into the story. And we're also going to learn the part that we have to play in it all. Now just to say, I know by the sniggers earlier on, I know some of you don't believe for one moment that it's possible for us to work through the entire Bible in such a short space of time. I mean, some of you were thinking that, weren't you? Uh, I mean, we've taken the best part of two years to work through just the first 14 chapters of Luke's Gospel. How are we going to do the entire Bible in just 20 
weeks. Now, first of all, for those who are concerned about Luke's gospel and why we're kind of finishing that, we will return to Luke's gospel in the new year with as much thoroughness as we have up until now. But at least through the autumn, we're going to adopt a slightly different style to usual. Uh, We're not going to be working through the Bible verse by verse, you'll be relieved to hear. Uh, We're we're not going to cover absolutely everything. We're we're just going to cover enough to kind of zoom out and see how the whole story fits together. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me say, unashamedly, this series is for you. You see, the Bible wasn't just written for Christians. Actually, it's God's book for everyone. Nobody, whether they believe in God or not, should live their whole life without at least dedicating 20 Sunday mornings to try and grasp the basic message of the world's best-selling book. And if you are a Christian, this is unashamedly for you as well. I don't want any of you to reach the end of your life and realize that you have pretty much frittered your time away busying yourself with things of secondary importance. Really, my hope and my prayer for this series is that God will catch each of you up with what your life is really for. So, without any further ado, let's get into it. This morning is going to be relatively easy. Uh, We're just going to cover the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Just pause there. The Bible begins with God. It's very, very simple. It doesn't try to convince us that God exists. doesn't feel that it has to. simply informs us that in the beginning, God. Now, these first four words in the Bible launch into a chapter which celebrates the incomparable greatness of the Creator God. Genesis 1 tells us ten times that God said, and each time it informs us that as a result, it was so. doesn't go into the detail of scientifically how He did it. No, the important thing to grasp is simply that He did it. It It's all about the immense greatness of God. Even though cosmologists tell us that they're in the region of 70 billion trillion stars in the universe, Genesis 1.16 only uses two Hebrew words when it tells us that he also made the stars. Creation of 70 billion trillion stars covered by just two Hebrew words. Really, it's like the whole thing is supposed to make us grasp how amazingly awesome and great God is. So the Bible begins with this mighty declaration that God is God and we're not. God is the Creator and we're His creatures. Really, that is the big picture. I mean, as we read how the story begins, humans only step onto the stage of world history as God is putting the finishing touches to His work of creation. 
Not until the latter half of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 that he finally gets round to creating humans. We're told that Adam and Eve are created in God's own image. So much here about the dignity with which humans are created. What really strikes us, though, is how very different we are from our Creator. For example, Isaiah 40, verse 28, tells us that the Lord never grows tired or weary. But humans do, don't we? Every day, at least three times a day, I have to stop and eat some food. And if I don't, my body tells me that I ought to. Psalm 121, verse 4, tells us that God never needs to sleep. But again, we do don't we? Even if we manage to pull the occasional all-nighter, I don't know who stayed up to watch the Scottish referendum results, anyone? Yeah, I mean, well, one person, really. Uh, Even if you've stayed up a whole night one night, you end up paying for it later. We need sleep, some of us more than others, but God has made us all to need sleep. It's like the very rhythm of our lives cries out that God is God and we're not. But we can't keep going unless we spend the best part of a third of our short lives in a darkened room sleeping. Oh, it's weird, isn't it? Actually, it's not weird. It's deliberate. It is God's way of showing us that we are mere creatures and He's the Creator. And just in case we miss this, God decrees that the seventh day of creation will be a day of rest. It will be a Sabbath. We're thinking, well, what's that all about? I mean, is God tired? No, we've just read, God doesn't get tired. It's not like he needs to rest because he's absolutely shattered after six days of pretty heavy creation exertion. But Jesus tells us in Mark 2, 27, that the Sabbath was made for humans. It was the seventh day for God, but it was the first day for Adam and Eve. It's as though God designed it, God set it up in such a way that they began their lives resting in the garden that He created for them, not stressing about all the tasks they had to do. At the beginning of every subsequent week, the Sabbath would keep on reminding them So in the words of Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. God's the creator. We're his creatures. That's the message of part one of the Bible. I don't know what you think. I think this is hugely relevant for our society. People say that the UK isn't really very religious anymore. Rubbish. I'll tell you what our religion is. Our religion is forgetting that we are mere creatures and constantly trying to find new ways of worshipping ourselves as creators. don't know how many of you use public transport. If you were to get on a bus or a train in the rush hour Invariably, you'll find nobody is talking to anyone else. They're all too busy on their smartphones. 
It's our worship time. We are essentially worshipping ourselves. It's as though we believe the whole world cannot cope without me posting on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or WhatsApp or sending an email or a a text. It'll all fall apart if I can't keep in touch with everyone else and let them know what I'm doing. Here's the thing. There is something about us that likes to think we are the most important one, that we are the creator. It's all about us and it's all down to us. And so we rush to work to pack as much in as we can. Lunch break, well they used to exist in the last millennium but not anymore. And then weekends, well They tend to be the most tiring part of all. We go back to work on Mondays to try and recover because it's like we just squeeze so much into our lives. And I think it's all because we forget that we are merely creatures dependent on God. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. God says, why don't you just take a rest? Remember, keep on remembering the beginning of every week. I'm God and you're not. Really, this is the battle that goes on in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's also massive in our society. Do you know that last year, in 2013, just under 5 million people in the UK had to take time off work due to stress? 5 million people. That is a lot of people. I suggest it's the symptom of people trying to act like their creator, trying to usurp God's rule and his lordship overall. Now this was the very issue which the devil targeted when, if you remember, he disguised himself as a snake and came to tempt Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Actually, it's a pretty rubbish disguise if you ask me. I mean, you'd have thought they'd have known better than to trust a talking snake. But they listened because the devil's message was one which people always liked to hear. He effectively encouraged them to play at being God. You see, God had created one specific tree among all the others in the Garden of Eden that he forbade them eating fruit from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, look, trust me on this. You don't want to experience that fruit. It's not going to be good for you. But the snake uses tactics that proved so incredibly effective back then that he's pretty much gone on using the exact same tactics ever since. He gets Adam and Eve to doubt God's word. He still does the same thing today. He asked them, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Constantly gets people to doubt God's word. He encouraged them to distrust God's character, maligning his motives by suggesting that God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and suddenly you'll be like God himself. Gets them to distrust the character of God And then he denies God's word outright, claiming you will not die. God's a liar. And what happens as a result of this is 
what's known as the fall. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and they fall under the curse of sin. The bitter aftertaste of the devil's food was death and sickness and stress and pain and toil. The very opposite of relaxing in the perfect world which God had designed for them. Again, it's the same today. I mean, just take a look at the city that we live in. Everyone rushing around as though they're God. And the byproduct? A whole lot of stress, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of toil, a whole lot of sickness and death. And God, in His grace, would stop us in our tracks and say, please, get the big picture. You know, that sounds slightly controversial, but God's not all that bothered whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Actually, he's not all that interested in labels. Much more concerned whether you obey Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Is that how your husband or your wife or your housemate or your classmate or your work colleague would describe you? Oh yeah, there's something very, very different about them. It's like that they know someone else is in charge of their life. Is that a fair description of your life? Ultimately, it begins and ends with God. Ultimately, it's all about Him. I mean, this is real stuff. We smile perhaps because stress and worry is part and parcel of life on planet Earth. And everybody does it. Yeah, everybody does it. Which is why it's incredibly serious. Now, this very much sets the scene for the rest of Genesis 1 to 11. This is how the story continues. Human population grows and people choose whether to rest in the fact that they are God's dependent creatures or whether to rage, whether to war, whether to fight against Him in order to become little gods themselves. Adam and Eve have two sons. You may have heard of them, Cain and Abel. And it's not long before they start acting out this whole conflict between admitting that they are mere creatures and trying to be the creator overall. It's like all the time there is this war going on, this battle raging. Am I willing to admit that I am just a dependent creature? Now you can tell whether you are still caught up in that struggle from the way that you inwardly react when you hear me say those words, dependent creature. You're thinking, I'm not dependent. I resent that. I'm not dependent on anyone. It's how we get offended, don't we, by the suggestion that we are dependent creatures. But that is precisely the point. We wouldn't survive an hour, even a minute, without the breath or heartbeat which God gives us. 
Even when we play at being little gods, we're only able to do so because in His grace, the Creator God keeps on sustaining us. The question is, will you admit it? Or will you keep on trying to be something you're not? Will you fall into the trap of acting as though you are effectively God, Lord, over your life? Cain tried to act as though he was creator God. He farmed a field, produced some great crops, brought them to God as a sacrifice. Basically, he was showing off to God. It's as though he was saying, you made the world, look what I've made. What a great team we are together. But God sees things very, very differently. It says, God was angry with him. By contrast, Abel, his brother, just brought a small lamb to God and killed it. I'll tell you, Genesis isn't a great book for vegetarians. Apologies if that is your leaning. You're maybe not going to enjoy this series. There's a lot of blood in it. (laughs) But he's basically saying, all the good stuff I've done isn't good enough. But I'm going to kill this innocent lamb as a way of showing my face in your provision for me. That's a bit of a weird picture. Until you understand that in the New Testament, in Luke 11, Jesus says that Abel was the first prophet. Read the story, Abel didn't prophesy anything verbally, but this whole sacrifice was a prophecy, Jesus says. It was a a picture of the day when God the Father would send His Son, Jesus, to do it all for us, to be sacrificed, the Bible says, as the Lamb of God, and to cry out as He died, it is is finished. Nothing for us to contribute, nothing for us to do, apart from trusting His finished work on the cross. Now for us today, temptation is to be like Cain, to keep on trying to impress God with our performance and with our good works, to effectively be our own saviour, whereas we're called to be like Abel, to constantly recognize our need for God and to keep on relying on Christ's finished saving work on our behalf. As the story unfolds, it doesn't go well with Cain and Abel. In short, Cain is really cross with God for not being impressed when he effectively shows off with all the things he's worked really hard to do for him. But God responds even then with incredible grace. He tells Cain that all he needs to do is offer a sacrifice that expresses his dependence on God. And so Cain's faced with a choice. Same choice that we're faced with today. Will we accept and live as though God is God and we're not? But Cain's not interested. He prefers to kill his brother. He prefers to be a self-assertive murderer than a dependent creature. And he founds a whole dynasty of rebels who keep on trying to act like little human gods. Cain's dynasty becomes known as the sons of men. It culminates in the 
self-centered boasting of a guy called Lamech, who in Genesis 4 verse 23 boasts, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. It's like their rage against God turns into rage against anyone who reminds them that the universe doesn't revolve around them at all. But Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And in Genesis 4, 26, we're told that his offspring began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, there's some debate about who the sons of God are in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, I might be wrong on this. Some people would disagree. Some would agree. But my reading of it is that this term is simply a reference to the descendants of Seth. We're told, for example, that Enoch, one of his descendants, walked faithfully with God, and that another of his descendants, Noah, was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Listen, don't miss the big picture. This is very much the story of the world that we live in. That these events happened many thousands of years ago, but they're still just as relevant today. I mean, this city is full of Lamechs, people who are self-centered, self-dependent, living with no reference for God. And God's desire is for there to be many more Seths. Seth's family were the very first believers the first to confess gladly that God is God and we're not. And God prized their worship so highly that he gave them a starring role in part one of the Bible's story. And I believe as God looks down on our city, as God looks down into this room right now, he's still looking for those who call on his name, those who walk faithfully with him, those who will live dependent on him. And if that's you, right now God is wanting you to know his favour. He's wanting you to know that he is for you. And even if things don't work out as you would have liked, he is still with you. Some of you, you, you're going to almost kind of feel the favor of God on you right now. In the midst of what you're going through, what you're facing, the favor of God. He wants you to know there is an important role he has for you in his story, which is still unfolding. As we move into Genesis 6, See, six chapters already. I need to be going for 20 minutes. Not bad. Something terrible happens. He says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. It's absolutely tragic. Seth's family, the sons of God, stopped worshipping God as dependent creatures and married into Cain's self-assertive family. They started marrying people who didn't even believe in God. They're effectively saying, our commitment to following Creator God is so low that we're going to marry people who aren't the least bit interested in following Him. This whole following God thing is just a small part of our lives. And what happens? 
So often happens when people compromise their faith is rather than their partner getting on fire for God, the believer gets less and less on fire for God themselves. It's exactly what we see happening in Genesis 6. To the extent that we're told in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. Nowadays, many people laugh at the story of Noah and his ark. But you've got to explain why a version of the flood story appears in the ancient writings of all the world's great cultures. As far back as the Mesopotamian epics of Atrahasis and Gilgamesh and the ancient Greek story of Deucalion, as far west as the Aztecs of Central America, even there in the old stories of the Aborigines in Australia. It's a historical event which teaches us three vital lessons right at the start of the Bible. First of all, it shows us, bottom line, God takes it very seriously when we sin by pretending to be little gods. What happens is the entire human race, with the exception of Noah and his family, start living as though they don't really need God anymore. It's all about me, 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 me. And God says, I will not put up with the human race like that forever. God takes it very seriously when we sin by pretending to be little God. Second, it warns us that judgment day is definitely coming. You see, it's easy for us to think that if God is so concerned about people sticking two two fingers up at him and living with no regard for him whatsoever, then why on earth doesn't he do anything about it? He is going to do something. But he loves us so much that He's being patient and he's giving us a chance to turn to him. But judgment day is definitely coming. This is what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3. He warns us that in the last day, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that Jesus promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You've got to understand, God has set a judgment day for sin. It is coming. And then third, all of this assures us that God has made a way for sinful people to be forgiven. I mean, God tells Noah to build an ark. It seemed like an absolutely ridiculous command, an impossible command, But Noah believed God and obeyed. The ark was massive. It was the largest vessel ever made 
until Brunel built the SS Great Britain in the 19th century. That's how big the ark was. And Noah didn't even have any power tools, and he still built it. Simply told twice. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. If we were to skip over into the New Testament, New Testament makes a big deal of the fact that the ark was made from wood. If you like, it points towards the wooden cross of Jesus. Listen, if you have been living your life without God, the only way to be saved is to come to Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus effectively does the opposite of us. We're we're creatures and we're constantly trying to be God. Jesus is God, but 2,000 years ago, he became a creature. And when he died on the cross, he took our punishment on himself so we could receive forgiveness and a brand new start. Noah himself gets a new start. Floodwaters subside, and it's like God starts again with a family who are willing to say, you are God, and we're not. Now, here's the amazing thing. Noah gets out of the ark, and let's face it, he's, he's confronted with the mother of all to-do lists, that the whole of human civilization has been destroyed, wiped out, and he is in charge of its reconstruction. If anybody might have been tempted to get stressed out and over-busy, surely it was Noah. Yet the very first thing he does when he steps out of the ark is absolutely nothing. I'm aware some of the women here are thinking, typical bloke. No, 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 no. Hold those thoughts. He resolved to live as God has always intended humans to live. We're told in Genesis 8, he put down his hammer and his axe, and he lifted up his empty hands to God in worship. And we see in verse 21, the Lord smelt the aroma of the sacrifice, and it was pleasing to him. You know, we are in desperate need of the message of Genesis 1 to 11. We belong to one of the most stressed out and self-centered generations in all of human history. And God invites us right at the start of the Bible to make a choice between Adam's fig leaves and God's blood sacrifice between Cain's hard work and Abel's faith, and between Lamech's pride and Noah's obedience. Will we act like little gods, or will we humbly accept that we are mere creatures whose happiness is bound up in the fact that God is God and we're not? Will we Lift our hands in worship to the Creator God and let Him be Lord over our whole lives.